Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. In recent weeks, American cities, suburbs, and small towns have seen an explosion of protests reacting to the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Even as many have commented on the racial diversity of the demonstrators, many of those organizing the marches are young African-American activists. While Black pastors have organized several marches in major cities like Chicago and Washington, D.C., they have not been at the forefront of a movement that arguably began back in Ferguson in 2014. We wanted to get a sense of how Christianity has shaped many of those on the front lines. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, editorial director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, I figured for our gut check today, we might just check in about how we've been observing the Christian community participate in many of these protests. What have you noticed? Yeah, well, you know, I'm out here in Wheaton, Illinois. I have heard a lot of just neighbors and friends saying I'm, you know, saying I'm eager to march. You know, do I march downtown? Do I march here in Wheaton? Here in Wheaton, it's been interesting. There's been a march or a demonstration, like there was one where people lined the streets almost every day. So there's been, I think, a couple of days where there wasn't one, but almost every day there's been one here in Wheaton, attended by you know a thousand or more folks, and that's been interesting. And, and heavy church involvement, heavy church involvement, and very little pushback. And a lot of folks have have gone downtown too. There hasn't been pushback like like I heard in the Black Lives Matter protests of earlier years. And so there's been much more wrestling, not with should I protest. Uh, will I be more effective protesting in my community where I you know talk to the police face to face or to add to the numbers downtown or both. So that's kind of been my you know personal engagement there. How about you? Last Tuesday I went to an interfaith March that was in Bronzeville in Chicago. I saw a lot of people that I knew from both church communities that I've been a part of over the past couple years. Yeah, I I noticed a lot of Christians there, although the folks that were actually speaking in the front were not necessarily, they were, I think there was one white evangelical pastor. There were a couple of rabbis. The rest were leaders in predominantly African-American congregations. One of my friends who is African-American was kind of commenting to me and asking why there were not more evangelical pastors that were participating. I wasn't exactly sure who organized that or so forth, but it was interesting to see at least from the lay person's presence that there were a number of Christians that I knew there personally. And I think there were about 10,000 people that showed up to, to that one in particular. I did tell people (laughs) when I was at the march that part of me wished it had not been interfaith so we could sing Christian songs, encourage more people to pray or do kind of explicitly Christian things that I think I maybe just have was probably church starved at that point. (laughs) And that was the closest thing that I'd had to church for a couple months or something that felt like that. I think maybe that's what I was missing. I will say in general, though, the other things that I have been to have not 
felt very Christian at all. So it does seem like there is somewhat of maybe a sacred and secular divide. Yeah, even here in Wheaton, which is like a northern you know, suburb, like super dang Christian, super dang evangelical, the protests were not visibly Christian. All, you know, if you took the signs or if you took the speaking or if you took, if you took you know, a lot of the just conversations, people were eager to see each other, but it was uh, definitely community more than more than Christian community. Yeah. And I don't really know how I feel about that right now. I just think it's it's interesting to to kind of see that play out. All right. Who is our guest today? Our guest today is Watson Jones. Watson Jones III is pastor of Compassion Baptist Church in Chicago. He's previously served as senior and founding pastor at Restoration Church in Philadelphia and youth pastor at Chicago Salem Baptist Church and served in other congregations as well. He's currently pursuing his PhD in African-American preaching and sacred rhetoric at Christian Theological Seminary. And we are really glad to have him this morning. Thanks for being here, Pastor Jones. Thank you so much for having me, Morgan and Ted. It's just a joy, honor, and a privilege to be here. I appreciate all that you all are doing at Christianity Today and loving to see you guys challenge perspectives and push for voices as well. So thank you. Thank you for letting me be here today. Pastor Watson, I have seen you around at various Chicago things over the years. Did you actually go to the march last week? I did. I was about a few feet from the front. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm shorter than most, so you couldn't really probably couldn't see it. But no, I was there. I was there. It was a momentous occasion. Yeah. Why don't you say a little bit more about that and who you noticed were there? Yeah. So it was very much interfaith. It was very ecumenical in that sense. It was organized by a Christian pastor, Pastor Chris Harris of Bright Star Church, legendary church in Chicago, by the way. It was very much interfaith. I mean, there were imams there, there were rabbis there, and they were all praying in their way. And and for many Christians, that felt a little weird. I think I came away, you know, I remember I was walking with Dr. Esau McCauley, who's professor at Wheaton, brilliant, brilliant scholar. One of the things that we talked about was in these kinds of movements is really interesting, especially to push for mass change, large change. It often calls for allies that sometimes are out of your tradition and even some that you disagree with on some maybe theological positions or things like that. And so I found it very interesting in that sense and not in a, I mean, I won't say interesting in the bad way or the positive way, but found it very interesting to, you know, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not one who hates Muslims or people who are Jewish. I'm not, I'm a Christian. I believe in Christ, the Messiah who died and was raised from the dead for my sins and is alive and reigning. But in this civil conversation, it, it just showed me sort of elements of the civil rights movement, though led by the black church, it definitely had to have allies that stood outside of the black church. But I also felt like that was an, an indictment on the American church, the fact that to push for any major move, the black church had to have allies of different faiths versus in mass, those who claim the name Jesus as well. So I, I'm curious, Pastor Watson, if you've been observing the protests that have been taking place in the past couple of weeks, and, and let's also go back all the way to 2014 after Ferguson, where would you say that the Black church has been in the midst of this movement? I've been sort of discouraged to see this movement, which which I will say in a way, well, I think God is up to something. I will say that. <laughs> and I'll, I can explain that later. But I think... One of the things that has been sort of interesting to me is different from every major movement for Black justice in America. The Black church is not at the forefront of this one. And I I think a lot of that has to do with 
sort of church perception, the movement of society. But by and large, while you may have had many Black pastors, clergy people who were very vocal for Black lives and many you know, individual pastors who may have shown up at events, and, and I would even argue you may have had a lot of people from Black churches who were at these events or at these marches and protests from 2014 to the present. But by and large, it has been led mostly, this has not been a, this has not been a theological movement. It has not been a movement that started, an ecclesiological movement for that matter. It hasn't been a movement that has started in the basements of churches or in prayer meetings and, and altars that flooded out into the streets. It's kind of been one that has looked and said, hey, where is the clergy? But since the clergy aren't here, we're going to lead the march. I, I feel like there have been movements in just the American church, black church in general, that have kind of sort of, sort of silenced its prophetic voice in mass. I don't know if it's because of, you know, the, the fight. We've got more things than we had maybe 60, 70 years ago that kind of may have pushed us away. But, but I do think, though, with that being said, that much of the, I still think, and I may be a, I may be a minority in this belief, but I believe that some of the activistic impulse that we see in young Black activistic leaders directly tie back to the Black church. I mean, much of its mold, much of how it does what it did, does what it does. Examples of things that early clergy people and faithful Christians did in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and even 70s. But there is an absence of, of clergy leading this movement. I am, I'm wondering what what are the similarities and differences between between that this and you know previous previous periods in, in church history where black churches faced that, this kind of question about active protest versus versus not I mean you know I, I re- remember at uh, even King's Church in Birmingham there was some concern and there was pushback against King and his own congregation said, you know, we, we hired you as a pastor. We didn't hire you, you know, to kind of read the, lead this national civil rights movement. And, and so there was some anxiety there. But even, I mean, going back to, you know, the tensions in the African Methodist Episcopal Church between folks like Daniel Payne, who were arguing for you know, button up our collars and, and straighten our ties, and more people like Henry McNeil Turner, who were is that similar to what you see now, or is there something really different now about about the questions about how involved clergy or the pastors should be involved in, in some of these movements? Black church historians will tell you this. There have always been sort of three streams and voices in the black church that dates back to the 1700s. Those who are more prophetic and those who are more focused on sort of pietistic things and those who kind of sit in the middle. There have always been sort of these three streams. When you you rightly point out in Dr. King's day, even in the black church during the civil rights movement, there were many there were many black churches who were vehemently against Dr. King and Gardner Taylor and others didn't want to have any parts to do with it. It's It's why the National Baptist Convention split to the Progressive National Baptist Convention, because the National Baptist did not want to partake in civil rights movement. I think those lines now have blurred a bit. I think the difference now might be. And, and this is just my opinion, my guessing. I, I think the difference might be a few things. The, the generation that fought in the civil rights movement is older. I mean, very much older. I mean, the younger players of the civil rights movement who were in their 20s then are in their 80s now. Like John Lewis. <laughs> right. The John Lewis, the oldest Moss Juniors, who is still very much present, active and doing their work in their own way. But sort of this newer crop of pastors, you know, we know the struggle from history, but we haven't had to fight the struggle, one. And two, I think we've also been tackled by local realities more than we have been by national realities. Mm -hmm. So 
police brutality is an example of something that is long old and it is very much a national problem. But we've also been locally dealing with school issues. We've been locally dealing with crime issues. We've been locally dealing with local corruption and local advocacy. That's some. Others probably have just said, you know, have probably taken the voice of many evangelicals to say, well, that's, you know, let's just preach the gospel. And then maybe then there are some who who might have just simply said, you know, we've made great progress. The fight is still real, but it doesn't require the protesting now. But again, I think the difference is, whereas it began with preachers and and not just preachers, but faithful, faithful people like Fannie Lou Hamer, which, you know, people would, would argue that that, you know, you read her about her in history books and they don't talk about her faith, but how much her faith in Christ Jesus is what led her to push for voting rights. Whereas it was that stuff was very much rooted in the church. I think it's not so much anymore. And I think another shift that has happened is including in the black community, the church still has a place in the black community in terms of it may not be central anymore, though. Whereas at one time, the church was really the only institution we had in our community. That's not necessarily the case now. We've been able to go into more careers. We just have a lot more third place gathering spots that don't include the church now. So because that's not necessarily needed, I I think it's just you don't feel this push. But I do think the push does exist. It exists in many many of our younger voices, though, that that have sort of been challenging the church. You know, Pastor Watson, you bring up an interesting point. I often think of the Negro Leagues and the effect that integrating the major leagues had on the Negro Leagues, which had been a huge source of Black wealth and institutional power and just a very powerful institution to be reckoned with. And once the major leagues decided to integrate, it all but bankrupted the Negro Leagues. There was a lot of depletion of where that power had come from. And when you were talking right there about now there being other places for folks to lead, some of just the unintended consequences of things that play out that way, which is, it's really interesting to think through. I'm curious, what do we know right now, or what do you know, about the religious backgrounds of many of the activists that are currently taking on police brutality or racial injustice or economic deprivation? I think of a few that I know here in Chicago have connections to the Black church. You know, some of them might have come from Salem. You know, some of them, I know one specifically who, who is a member of John Hanna's church, New Life. But but I don't know, I can't I can't say where many of them are coming from in this in their perspectives, primarily because of the fact that, you know, you just don't see, oh, there, there are many, there are some even in Chicago that I would say are coming from Trinity, Trinity United Church of Christ with uh, Otis Moss III. It's just hard to say because you don't hear in some of the public chants and rhetoric like God of justice or Jesus and justice or things like that. You hear Black Lives Matter, which I'm not at all against. I mean, I'm all for Black Lives Matter and and I'm saying, you know, Black Lives Matter, but you don't hear, like, you don't hear us singing, you know, hymns like you would have heard us singing when we were marching 60s. There aren't hymns that we're singing. So the, the, the anthem of protest, you know, at least I don't, wouldn't say it's now, but I've heard it quoted a few times as Kendrick Lamar's All Right, which I think I may speak to sort of the compartmentalization of, you know, some of the activists who who are just kind of leading as just, you know, saying we're we're tired of this, we're going to affect this change. But again, I think that that impulse comes from previous generations. Many of them are leading their pastors in these in these movements. I know in in the evangelical church at large, there's been it's been a source of consternation about the ways that millennials and Gen Z may be losing the faith that their parents had. 
I'm wondering, you know, you served as a youth pastor before. To what extent would you say that millennial and Gen Z African-Americans have remained a part of the church? And to what extent would you say that that's not true? I think Black millennials still generally go to church. It may look a little different in terms of consistency, but I think there still is relationship to it. I think of churches in Chicago right now, like Progressive has a lot of young Black millennials. Salem, which is pastored by James Meeks, was in the 60s. There are a lot of millennials who still go there, not just even ones I grew up with, but I know some who have joined in the last five to seven years who, you know, see that as their church. I think the struggle comes with millennials. Then if we talk of Gen Zers, the struggle may come when they don't hear churches talking about justice when they don't hear it. And I, I remember when I was pastor in Philadelphia, specifically that came to me where, you know, I'm preaching sermons that I thought were good sermons. Question arose from one of my members. What does God have to say about, this is when Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were killed back to back. What does God have to say about this? We have been in this same boat since 1619. And what does God have to say about this? So I think the frustration that many younger people will feel in the Black church is is when their churches have nothing to say about this, nothing at all to say about this. And and I think that's, you know, I think many are catching that. But when, when we don't have anything to say about it, we're not preaching about it, we ain't even praying about it. Many young Black millennials really, 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 really struggle with that. I mean, I would struggle with it. Tell me a little bit more about that, because I, I think for people who've not attended a lot of black churches. They've heard so much about the role of the black church in the civil rights movement and these kinds of things. I think that there's a view that the black churches tend to be heavy on social implications, heavy on social justice in their sermons all week, every week. What are the tensions in in preaching? I mean, what what is the, is it a matter of degree? Like, are, are younger folks saying it you're, you're, you're saying it, but it doesn't sound the way I want it to. Or is it that pastors are wrestling with how much to preach on, on social issues? So I still believe in my core that the Black church, I, I, I still believe that theologically we don't, gen, I'm speaking generally because it's not a monolith. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, yeah, many different kinds, sure. Yeah, we don't generally draw the harsh line between gospel preaching and gospel action, justice actions. I think it's probably been more of a question of what to do. I'm a son of Salem, for example, right? Reverend Meeks is one who, you know, I'm profoundly shaped by Reverend Meeks, profoundly. I would say the same for people like Charlie Dates, who, you know, will preach the Bible solidly, you know, flat-footedly and faithfully and call folks to Jesus, but will really push against systems. And, and I mean, and I, I think that in some cases, some of those pastors have gotten tired because it's taken a lot of work to do that. I think it's probably a question of maybe answering what do we do? Fighting the impulse. Do I fight to chase the, the headline? Do I preach what I was planning to preach? I think it's some of that. I don't know if we get the silence that I know that I've heard from some of my Black friends who are part of white churches. I don't think we get that kind of silence. But I think it's a question of just the action. Like, where is the action? Because, you know, in our preaching generally, we we will say some stuff. Now, we may not preach a series on justice. You know, like, I'm going to preach a series on justice. Definitely in our preaching, we'll drop subversive hints. Say something like, like, this, what's going on on 1600 Pennsylvania. I mean, everybody knows exactly what that means when you say that in the Black church. Right. <laughs> sure. Or when you say, you know, like, like, you know, like the suffocation that's happening to our young men. Everybody knows. Like, that kind of stuff is common. That's common rhetorical stuff that's normal. But I think it's more of the question of the action. Where is the action? When I mean silence in terms of silence of the clergy is where is the action? 
is the pushback there inter- internal as like a pastor wrestling with how much you know time do I give this or you know how you know or is it external like is it like an age gap in the in the church on on what people are wanting on on the, the feedback a pastor is likely to get after the sermon which I know is has been more of a, a concern in white churches I don't think the feedback is the issue at all yeah I don't think that the feedback is an issue some churches it could be generational because there's such a gulf between the two some churches it is you know, when I think of police brutality, for example, that is a long standing in Chicago, a very long standing issue. Some of them, it could be fatigue. I mean, because there are many pastors who are out there in the streets that are doing it, that are working for reform, that are working to change. That sometimes they're not as known because, they, I mean, like, you know, it's not, again, we're not forefront of a movement like we were. And I think that's just because of where church is in society. For some, it just may be fatigue. Like they fought justice fights so long and gotten whooped for them, and churches have struggled from them, where it's just, it's tired, then some of them may just not even have theological category for it. I don't think, and I think that might be a minority. I think of some churches who probably now may be saying some stuff, but weren't really saying things about it before because of sort of the individualization of the faith in terms of God's blessings for you kind of thing. And I'm not necessarily saying prosperity either, but like in terms of God, sort of what what Kenyatta Gilbert would call the priestly role of preaching, you know, the trying to uplift the soul of a person, you know, dealing with the soul that has to deal with this kind of mess, preaching to that kind of issue versus preaching to societal issues. I mean, Marvin McMichaels definitely talks about in his book, Where the Prophet's Gone, that, that there is just a a silence on the kind of preaching you would have heard 50 years ago that would have really pushed back Gardner Taylor, who would have preached both priestly, but then at the same time would have still been prophetic in, the, in New York. You just don't have that now. You either have one or the other. And I think the other, which is the more prophetic sound, is, is a lot more silent. Pastor Watson, I'm curious, you had mentioned, or you were just talking about churches who are saying something now, but might not have said something five or six years ago. When the Black Lives Matter movement started then, what conversations do you remember having with your fellow friends and ministers and church leaders about the particular movement? And do you remember at all any type of nervousness about being too closely associated with it? When the Black Lives Matter movement was starting, I was in a different church context. So, you know, where I'm at now, people in my church who I have, I'm thinking of a woman specifically who knew Megger Evers, who Megger Evers ate at her house in Mississippi. Wow. Uh, her father <laughs> was a part of, was the president of NAACP. And, you know, I have a lot of educators where silence on these issues. In fact, you know, I mean, if I say something about it, matter of fact, I'd probably get more amens on that kind of stuff. Than I, I mean, I, I mean, I get amens on Jesus too, but I mean, I would get a lot of amens. When Black Lives Movement Matter first started, I was a little, I was in the church planting world. I had planted restoration in Philadelphia. I was in different networks that, you know, had Black sort of as minorities, mostly white led. The conversations I was having then, which, you know, people who have known me have known that because I, I would say that I am a descendant of Salem Baptist Church, that the notion of being silent on these issues is just not an option. But you have to be wise in what you say, meaning you have to have action to back up what you say. So you can't just say stuff to say stuff. You got to have something to do with what you say. Some of the conversations then that I was having were more pointed at the larger white church and their silence, because most of my a lot of my black peers who were pastoring even in black churches at the time who were closer to my age, the silence thing wasn't a question for them. So I'm thinking like, for example, Charlie Dates, when Laquan McDonald was killed, you know, I remember Charlie and other pastors here. Pastor Dr. Charlie leading, you know, a, a silent march, you know, gathering at the police station on, I mean, police headquarters on 35th and Michigan. I didn't live here at the time. 
but I remember it. Whereas when I was in the church planting world, people like myself, another guy, Jordan Rice, we felt sort of like we were alone on an island yelling about things that were very biblical, feeling like we had no allies to hear us. And I think our allies were in the black church. But when you step, when I stepped into the church planting world, you know, in one sense, you know, I, I was not in the black church world like I was. I mean, not, I'm not talking about in terms of a distance, like I wanted to be away from it, but just, you know, the large church planting movements are not led by African-Americans. There was more of a silence and a frustration, I would say, that was channeled more towards broader evangelicalism among people like me then more than it was younger Black congregants asking questions of their Black pastors. So I want to go a little bit deeper on this, Pastor Watson. You've talked multiple times about your own spiritual heritage and where you grew up, but I don't know, with white evangelicalism expanding, diversifying, you increasingly have more and more African-American Christians who have kind of come up through predominantly white evangelical institutions. I'm curious, what difference has that made both on the institutions, but also on these pastors and church leaders themselves? As this, you know, from 2014 to 2010, we've definitely seen a shift, so to speak, in how Black pastors, mainly who came from evangelical institutions, namely, I'm talking mainly about seminaries. I would say that Black pastors who came from those settings, the vast majority of us felt a serious frustration. We felt like, I would say if any, like, okay, so there were some African-Americans who I feel like bought a toxic apple of, and the toxic apple I mean is preach the gospel at the issue. Preach the gospel at the issue and push for racial reconciliation. There were some who said that. And I think some of that comes from that ex- that sort of stuff that's sort of passed around in evangelical institutions. And the reason why I say it's toxic is because it's not fully biblical. And so, and I can have that conversation too. But there are many of us, I would say, who remember our early Black roots, early Black church roots. And I'm not talking about in some distant past. I mean, just in terms of like growing up in Black churches. There are some who had no connection with that, but there are some of us who did, and we did not allow evangelical institutions to sort of squish out that passion because we believed it deeply to be biblical, still do. We saw it work out historically. And we've always kind of been, you know, in, you know, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of my, my time at TEDS. For the African-American students I knew at TEDS who made it all the way through, maintained this piece of, I'm here because I like your view of the Bible and I like your, your centrality on Jesus. And I like the professors here who do talk about justice, but I disagree with how you see the gospel working out in society. And we just never would compromise that. But I think some of the voices of the ones who are louder now that are coming from those institutions, it's just because I feel like they're yelling louder than the circles that they've been in that have kind of made them more not vocal. Well, I would say there were some who were not vocal. There were some who were not vocal. I, I remember specifically in days of Trayvon Martin, I mean, I was extremely vocal about it, extremely vocal. And I remember being called to the carpet by an African-American pastor saying, you know, things like, I feel like you're preaching more of this stuff than you are the gospel. That may be hard for some donors who are supporting you. I think you person was looking out for me in terms of raising money. So, but I, I would say that the people I hung with probably always had it, but, but I think it's grown louder over the course of these five years. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. 
That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're we're in in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You know, having been in a multi-ethnic space, Pastor Watson, I'm curious how in your experience have you and other Black pastors and church leaders figured out who your constituency is and who you're preaching at? Yeah, like you mentioned earlier about the raising money aspect part of things. I'm just curious how you might feel those pressures differently when you as an African-American is leading a multi-ethnic church than maybe white pastors who are leading multi-ethnic churches. Most of the churches that we had to raise money from were white churches. And some of them, I think, theologically agree. I mean, I had many conversations with them, they agreed. But there was always this fear of saying the wrong thing and then your funding gets snatched and your church closes. There was always this fear. I think for some of my peers, I think of Derek Puckett, for example, who pastors Renewal Church Chicago, whose church is multicultural, for younger Christians, young, and I'll, I'll even use the term evangelical because I, I use evangelical on a theological basis, not on a political or even social. I think of what holds evangelicalism together in terms of certain beliefs. When I think of younger evangelical multi-ethnic churches, like people like Derek, who pastors his church, he's been doing the tough work of arguing and showing biblically the place of justice. And I think because younger white evangelicals specifically don't struggle as much as maybe their parents and grandparents did with that subject, it's a lot easier for him to talk about it. I've even seen conversations that some of them have had with people who would say stupid stuff and they would counter them with biblical facts because of people like Derek and people like Brian Loritz and people like Albert Tate, Ricky Brown and others who have challenged some of that bias that may exist in some of the hearts and some of the some of the blindness about racial issues. What I have seen a shift in is a I won't say a de-emphasizing, but 
further clarifying what racial reconciliation means in those spaces, especially when it's led by Black churches. I think in, in terms of churches that have, have aimed at becoming multicultural that were not Black, they tend to struggle on this one, on what I'm about to say. But the ones that were led by Black folks, especially Black people who came from Black church settings, there has been a further clarifying on racial reconciliation to say racial reconciliation that does not include justice or an acknowledgement of the wrong and the movement towards making right is not real reconciliation. I have seen that kind of a argument and thread be moved through. And I would imagine some of them have lost ground, at least with some white people. I think of Eric Mason, for example, there, there were many white evangelicals who used to just berate him on Twitter for things that he would say that were true. It just did not gel well with white evangelicalism. But I think that a lot of younger white Christians might have been a little more open to hearing it. I mean, I just feel like they're a lot more aware. They tend to be a lot more socially aware than maybe their parents were and grandparents were. So I've seen that kind of shift where they've been saying, hey, let's still be together. We are brothers and sisters in Christ that brings us together through the blood of Jesus. But understand that this together does not ignore that in society, your black and brown brothers and sisters are still taking the beating. And if you don't say something, this is not real reconciliation. I've heard that time and time again, either through blogs, through statements on Twitter, through a statement on Facebook, or even just in preaching. So this is what I hear you kind of hinting at, Pastor Watson, which is that one place of where the Black church may be you know, we were talking about them maybe not leading so much in the wider cultural context, but much of that leadership does seem to be manifest in multi-ethnic spaces where they are taking the lead and teaching the evangelical church at large about these issues and standing up. And maybe to some extent that it's challenging to lead in the wider cultural context because of the fact that you're having to do so much more persuading and teaching of your congregation. Let me nuance a little, little bit more what you're saying. I, I think that the absence of Black church in these movements is just cultural. It's just a cultural phenomenon. I think what has been pushing probably white evangelicals probably have been Black pastors, you know, who are, you know, some of us pastor Black churches and still have good relationships with white pastors who pastor large evangelical churches or lead large denominations or Black pastors who pastor multi-ethnic churches, I think those have been the ones who have challenged white evangelicals a lot more, or at least their voices have been heard more, primarily because the black church in large, which I'm, you know, is much more detached and just historically, it's just more, much more detached from white evangelicalism because that's how it, I mean, that's how it came to be. I mean, you know, black church came to be because white churches wouldn't let them be there. So there is a little bit more of a distance too, but then also black churches, black pastors are just a lot more localized in terms of just having to deal with day by day, harsh realities in urban life and trying to deal with the next big emergency, not even just church, but just, we've got to push for this that's happening over here on 79th street. We've got to push for this that's happening over on 95th street. So I think that they're busy in the field doing work that's a little bit more local, that doesn't catch public, that doesn't catch large spotlight, which which I think the unfortunate part about that is that it, it does feed the narrative that there is a silence, which I don't think that there is a silence. There may not be as much action and you may not see a lot of clergy lying in the front of protests. There are some there, but I think younger people probably got madder faster. <laughs> In broader evangelicalism, now I'm using that term not necessarily theologically now, more speaking about white Christians, white conservative Christians. In, in that space, I think they have been pushed more 
because of African-Americans who are who have been able to I don't want to say infiltrate because that sounds negative, but who, who have gone to the institutions, been a part of the networks, denominations or whatever, who have been vocal and who have had deep, profound relationships. So I think about I have a friend in. So I was a part of Acts 29 before I came to Chicago. Uh, and I didn't like leave Acts 29 on like a beef or anything like that, but I'm I'm not leading the church anymore that I planted. So I'm in Chicago pastoring a black church that is a part of a white denomination. Most people don't know that, but it is a part of a very white denomination. Because of where I am, or be, my time in Acts 29, I remember having these conversations early on with leadership in Acts 29. Like, man, stop talking about racial reconciliation. Stop talking about justice in the sweet by and by or some eschatological vision of justice. Y'all have influence over people who got power to change this. Use your pulpits to say stuff. Those kind of challenges that I put to people in those positions, I've seen around the country where white evangelicals have led their churches in marches and protests alongside of Black Lives Matter movements and alongside of even groups that they may not even agree with on the largest push to say we are Christians and we believe in justice and we're going to join it. We may not sign off on everything, but I'm not talking about everything as it relates to justice for black people. There are some platforms that we don't agree with, kind of follow that whole wind, but we believe in justice. And so we're going we gonna to stand there. And I think that has come from pushing that has taken place from minorities in those settings. The vast majority still aren't listening, but some are. So I, I want to take this conversation back to the spiritual lives of young African-Americans right now. You know, what? what is it going to take, not only from the Black church, but from the church at large to really support Gen Z and millennials within the African-American community? So I'm going to answer it in two ways. Let me answer it in the Black church. Let me answer it to the white church. And then I'll try to merge the two. One of the things I do at Compassion, every February, we have Black History Month. And I, and my church will tell you this, I do not, I mean, we we highlight people, inventors, artists, actors, things like that. Even people in our church who have done great things that are Black leaders, you know, we, we highlight those things. But my church will tell you, one of the things they've heard me say over the last several few years I've been there is that the movement for freedom and equality for Black folks I tend to argue it that it was very much theological. And specifically what I mean by that is because when I learned Black history at school, it was a sociological phenomenon. It was Dr. King, the activist. It was Fannie Lou Hamer, the activist. It was Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist. The God part of it is completely divorced. That's not accurate. I mean, Frederick Douglass critiqued the American church on biblical basis. He said, this is not in his appendix in slave narrative. He says, this Christianity in America is not Christianity of the Bible. It's not what I see from Jesus. It was his profound faith that led that criticism. When I look at some of the early sermons of people like Absalom Jones, who praised God in his Thanksgiving Day sermon for the abolition, for the abolishment of the slave trade. This is pre-abolition of slavery. His sermon was essentially God ended that. And because God ended that, Teach your kids about Jesus and tell them to walk right with the Lord. That was the thrust of it. But you don't hear that. And so I have said to my church, God in some weird way, and this is, I'm, I'm answering that. This is a long question. I'm answering this on the black side. And I'm going to say what white people need to say about this. One of the things that I see when I read the scripture is that there is no distinction between righteousness and justice. And, and I'm going to borrow Charlie's idea, and he's writing on this, is that, you know, he's not, he hasn't made this part up, but they're cousin cognates. That's what Dr. Charlie Dates would say. You don't have real justice if you don't have real righteousness, but you don't have real righteousness if you don't have real justice. 
And so what I've seen as I've tried to help people say is, you know, our people as African-Americans, you know, did not know a time of not being a slave until 1865, until emancipation happened. And granted, now we still had to fight after that, but that came from years of praying, years of pushing. And God, I, I was hands down say it, God ended slavery. God gave us the right to vote through the fights and the prayers of people who pushed and prayed prophetically and marched prophetically. I want to show in my church and I try to show my Gen Zers and, and, and this is because I believe showing God who saves us through Jesus. But, you know, because of his compassion and what theologians would call common grace, he still, according to Psalm 103, executes causes, executes righteousness and justice for all oppressed. There, there is a sense where we know he's moved by his people purchased by the blood, but he's also moved by the pleas of those who suffer and no one fights their case. So I try to help my church see that, especially for younger generations, because that's the question that has been asked. That is an apologetic question. Does God care for the suffering? And the Bible I read says he does. And I'm going to preach that, that God is the God of the underdog. So I show, so that's one thing that has to be raised up more. Secondly, white churches, white evangelical churches, they need a few things. Pastors have to really come become prophets again and really call out the sin of historic racism in the white church. And I think some have done it, but some have not done it. They need to, they have to preach that. Not just racism in terms of how you feel about people, but the silence, which they said in the street, silence is violence. The silence and the excuses you make for why black people should be able to die at the hands of police officers or George Zimmerman, that that inherently is sinful. That Jesus... Matthew 25, what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. And he identifies there with the criminal, the sick, the naked. Broader evangelicalism does not identify with the suffering that are not just babies, but the suffering that are, that's black, that is brown, the violent words and the vitriol we hear in the White House, the threat of violence against peaceful protesters, or just being choked out on the street when that does just does not happen to white folks like that. If white pastors do not learn to take the risk of preaching that, and I know that may mean some of them are going to get kicked out the churches, which that reveals a deeper problem. If white pastors don't use the power of the pulpit and the word of God to challenge this age old demon, the American church is in trouble. And if they get kicked out of their pulpit, they're walking in the footsteps of many black pastors before them. So <laughs> you're not lying there, Ted. That, that's all. I, I, I've been reading some Francis Grimke sermons. He has this one sermon about, you mentioned prayer. I am struck by the repeated emphasis that he gives that, that prayer is not something that is uh, separate from activism. It's not something that you do instead instead of making your voice heard, but that it cannot, you cannot make your voice heard without without making your voice heard to God as well. He talks about we we I, I'm deeply appreciative of of all the abolitionists that push for the abolition of slavery, but it says the uh, the slave himself had had part in that struggle second to none, and it was the part which he played on his knees. And I thought that that is that is something that I that that I need to keep in mind as as I wrestle with what where do where do I make my voice heard in the current conversation, but to make sure make sure my voice is heard not just not just to the principalities and powers, but to God. And yeah, prayer. Prayer has power. And, and, you know, we believe that prayer changes things. And one of the things I said last week, I talked about this extensively on my social media with morning devotionals that I've done. And I said, I borrowed this phrase, these, this kind of idea 
from a preacher I heard, Dr. Otis Moss Jr., where he talked about pathetic empathy and prophetic empathy. And I kind of used his idea to say we have to have prophetic weeping, pathetic weeping and prophetic weeping. Pathetic weeping is woe is us, woe is this injustice, woe is this, but it has no teeth to do anything. But prophetic weeping is the kind that call it's it's the kind that talks to God and calls out this evil and laments to God and mourns and cries out. But it's also the kind that prays on the picket. It pay it prays at the protest. There was a protest right on the corner near my house where they were looking to go into a very, very racist neighborhood in this city. Very racist neighborhood. And they weren't allowed to. And they were in the middle of the street. They were they bowed on the knees and I got on my knee and and I stayed there. I wasn't a part of that protest primarily because I didn't I didn't know the leaders. I didn't know what they were demanding. But I stayed there and in my heart I was praying, you know, Lord, don't let this thing go south. They're pulling out more cops with riot gear out here. These are kids. Don't let this thing go south. Lord, please change this thing. Please, you know, help, you know, and I'm praying in my soul, like help. And I think that's the difference between a pathetic prayer and a prophetic prayer. Pathetic prayer just prays and doesn't do anything. It just abdicates its responsibility. But prophetic prayer acknowledges the God of all creation who has power in his hands to raise a dead Jesus, to say that if you raise the dead Jesus, you can raise this dead situation. And Mm -hmm. I will pray and move at the same time. All right. Well, with that, would you like to close with a word of prayer, Pastor Watson? <laughs> yeah, let's pray. Yeah, that's good. Wait, did you want me to pray or, or was that Ted? No, 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 no. you no. pray. Oh, let me pray. Okay. All right. God, we thank you so much for your amazing grace, your amazing grace towards us, your kindness to us, Lord. As we sit here in a Kairos moment, a time that is that 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 our actions are are being watched by the world and, and we're claiming the truth that we are the salt and light of the earth. And so God, I pray that that you would help your church lean into that call as, as salt of the earth, light of the world, that as Matthew says, Jesus, as you said, uh, that they may see our good works and glorify the Father. And so God, I pray Jesus that one, that you would unify your church, not just for the sake of unity, but unify your church in this issue. And for some, that requires repentance. For others, that require, requires repentance of silence. Some of it requires repentance of just other things. And some of us, it, it requires and are willing to embrace. But I pray that you help us in this cause. I pray for a real change here. I pray for real change, for systemic changes, for policies to be put in place, legislation to be written, agreed upon, bipartisan, to, to be able to, if hearts won't change, towards race, about racism towards people, that laws will ad- actually and adequately protect people who could be victims of it. I pray for that kind of change. I pray for movements from people out of positions from, from across the board who, who, who mean no good, who mean no good to see justice take place. I pray that you move them. And Jesus, I pray that you would have your way in this world. Do what you can and do and what you're able to do. And we believe that you're able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all we can ask or think. And so God, we lift this to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Well, thank you for this rich discussion. For people who have feedback for us, please send us an email. We are at podcasts with an S at ChristianNeedToday.com. We enjoy reading what you have to say. Also, please tweet at us. We are at CT Podcasts. Now we will have our segment, Slow to Speak, which is when we get to hear from our listeners. Ted, do you want to read a letter that we got last week? 
I do. This is both of our letters are in response to our podcast on the history of policing and Christians' understanding of law and order, the interaction between the rise of the evangelical movement and the rise of the current criminal justice system. So this first letter is from Mark Rutz, and we've edited it down a little bit, but here is the crux of the matter. Racism and police brutality have many causes and many consequences. Like just about everything in life, it's a complex problem that will require a lot of hard work and many steps toward a solution, which we will never fully reach short of Jesus' return. Yes, police forces and the government need to be held accountable for the harm done by their policies. They do share some blame, but this should not be used to fully indict an entire group. Those few are still ultimately responsible for their actions. We got this letter from listener Adam Peterson. This is what he writes. Aaron Griffith says towards the end of the episode that the bad apple language for police officers and the idea that we can train our way out of a problem of over-policing and police brutality came across as counterintuitive to me. I've seen a lot of advocates in recent days, including places like Campaign Zero, advocate for just such a solution escalation training, more training in empathy and implicit bias, more training in non-lethal tactics. Griffith seems to reject this idea as somehow counterproductive. He mentions in the very end of the episode the need for a change of imagination and the need for more direct intervention with young people. But I'm curious what he thinks the solution would be for police brutality. As a historian, I understand it's not his duty to necessarily come up with a solution, but I'm still curious as to what he thinks the solution should be. What can we advise for the police in our local communities here and now so that this gets better for everyone, but especially our brothers and sisters of color. Thank you, everyone, for writing to us, or I guess in this case, thank you, Adam, and thank you, Mark, for listening and engaging. We love to read letters on the show. Please send them to us. Again, we are at podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com. Now's the time of the show we call Precious Moments. We ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Ted, you always get to go first. You still have to go first. <laughs> go ahead. I do still get to go first. I don't talk about my kids a whole lot on social media, but you know, a joyful moment this week was it was my it was my son's 14th birthday. 13 is that kind of uh, liminal birthday where you're entering entering the teenage space. And at 14, you are you are solidly in it, and he is. He is now as tall as I am. You know, it's just a time to, you know, he had a birthday party with social distancing in the backyard where we pulled out the TV and he watched a movie with his friend. So it was not a real parent-involved birthday as as 14-year-old birthdays are often the case. It was that moment to reflect on just seeing him grow up over the last 14 years. And it just brought a lot of joy and just reflecting on on the last the last 14 years. So that was mine, Morgan. I'm on Twitter at Ted Olson. Morgan, what, what was your moment of joy this week? There's a nonprofit in my neighborhood that I really love that was working with a local high school senior to organize some neighborhood cleanups. He organized two on Tuesday and Wednesday. I didn't go to them, but then they had also advertised one for Saturday. And I had assumed there might be about 20 or 30 people at the cleanup. And I showed up to the cleanup and it was far more than what I expected. Looked like it had actually been, I don't know whose idea it had started out with and how many ideas had gotten turned into other ideas. But by the time I got there, there were multiple aldermen that had showed up there. Lori Lightfoot, the mayor, her wife was there. Different pastors were there. They had music going, tons of cleaning supplies all over the place and probably about 1,500 people. That's just my guess. It was just really encouraging to see so many people come out to 
just hang out and help out in the neighborhood. Yeah, that was it was just an interesting week in Chicago last week, but it was encouraging to to see all of that. I had never seen that many people in that part of the city before. Again, I admit that I just also just miss large person gatherings. <laughs> from Morgan probably. loves people, so I think people know that already. Man, <laughs> I, yeah. yeah, it was probably more meaningful, even just because of that. But it did feel that, you know, like there is so much energy. I mean, uh, for people who know Chicago, it was in North Lawndale. North Lawndale is a neighborhood that Dr. King actually lived in when he lived in Chicago. Yeah, I just thought it was powerful. There was also a really good prayer there by a pastor, which I appreciated. And he led everyone in having a an eight-minute moment of silence, which was also very powerful, especially because it's a very long time. Yeah, I was thankful for all the people that came out, thankful for the different types of groups that were there. There were definitely police officers there, and there were definitely people who protest the police that were there. But I was glad that everyone was able to come out and show support for North Lawndale on the west side of Chicago that day. I'm on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, Pastor Watson, you go. Yeah, so I was really encouraged last week. It's similar to your story, Morgan. Near my church, we had rioting, looting, all that stuff that was going on. And we had fires and all that stuff. And I was really encouraged. I got a call from my alderman last Monday, the alderman of the of the seventh ward. And he said, Pastor, I mean, he, he was almost in tears. Pastor, we I need your help, man. You know, they, they have looted Jewel on 95th and Stone again. And it's just empty. Oh my gosh, Pastor. And so I, I said, all right, man, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. So I jump up and I hadn't even showered, get there. And while I'm there, I, I put a call out on social media. I said, I need anybody, everybody who's from the east side of Chicago, who's ever shopped at this place to come help me. The idea we had was to clean up the store, one, two, secure the store. And, and you know, not, you know, my heart was really to secure black businesses, but you know, at the same time, I said, man, we don't own our Albertsons, but if this grocery store goes, it's the, it was the last standing one in the area. So we're like, we got it. We got it. We have to guard it. And so I was encouraged by, first off, a bunch of my members from the church showed up, some of whom did not need to be there. I mean, like one woman who had back surgery last year. And I'm like, uh, you need, I'm going to tell you nicely request nicely <laughs> or firmly for you to go home. You do not need to be here. And she looked at me like, well, Pat, I said, ma'am, ma'am, please go home. And so she got in the car, she left. She wasn't offended. But I, you know, I'm like, if you fall, you know, you could be paralyzed. And right, so right, right. she went home, but there were many, many members, some of them senior citizens who came, showed mm. up, swept wow. out the glass, cleaned up things. No one complained, no one fussed. They showed up. I was encouraged by that. Secondly, when we had to create a second wave, police were there and we had the place <clears throat> barricaded by Jersey walls, a Jersey barricades, and so that people couldn't drive up to pop the store back open. There were a number of people who showed up, people who I had never even met. One young woman I'm thinking of specifically was a teacher in the area and she she just showed up, said, I'm looking for Pastor Jones. Somebody called me and said, Pastor Jones needs your help, so go up here. I was like, I don't know you. Just all these random people younger people who I didn't even know who just showed up and were there and stayed there until, you know, I said, we're going to leave at like nine, 10 o'clock at night and just stayed there to guard this store. And that encouraged me because, you know, the mayor came earlier in the day on all this stuff, but I was encouraged because it, what it said, and I wish there were media presence to pick it up. While the narrative was protesters and stuff like that, tearing up everything, 
which is not true, that people really care about their community, really want the best for their community, and were willing to give their time and energy at, at the risk of getting glass in their feet and, and at the risk of even violating social distancing and getting sick, were willing to say, this is important and I'm willing to do this. And that blessed my soul. So I was really encouraged by that. I can be found on Twitter at Watson Jones 3. All right, that's it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is made possible by people who subscribe to Christian Knee Today magazine, so become one. You can do so by going to morect.com slash podcasts. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps and the transcript is done by Boonmi Ashola. We really appreciate everyone who rates and reviews the show. Thank you everyone who has gone on to Apple Podcasts to do that. We are available wherever you get your podcasts from and we will see you all next week.